The title of the message this morning is, What a Pastor Must Be. What a Pastor Must Be. Last week we learned that a pastor and a bishop and an elder are all the same thing. And uh, Paul has been telling Titus about the qualifications of a pastor. And so it's important to understand these qualifications even though it might not be the most exciting thing for us to preach about uh, here on Sunday morning, it is extremely necessary. There's not a part of God's Word that God's people do not need to be thoroughly instructed on. Because getting an unqualified pastor in the church can scar a child of God for the rest of their life. Did you know that? They can. There's people I know right now, many of them, uh, in some ways, I'm one of them. But if you get a pastor that's not qualified and you sit under that pastor, he can cause you some scars for the rest of your life. And not only can it make believers be scarred the rest of their life, it can make non-believers twofold the child of hell, as Jesus spoke about with the Pharisees. So the Holy Spirit's prerequisites for being a pastor, as we began to study, they began like with the Old Testament Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. It was the negative qualifications. Paul told Titus what a pastor can't be. So in our study last week, we learned what a pastor can't be. And now this morning, by God's grace, we're going to begin to learn what a pastor must be. In verse 7 last week, if you'll look there, this is where we left off. Paul said, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. Not, not, no, and not. So these are some of the things that a pastor can't be. Uh, So a pastor can't be self-willed, soon angry, given to wine, a striker, nor greedy of unjust gain. A pastor can't be that kind of man, verse 8, but, in other words, he must be a lover of hospitality. A lover of hospitality. Now, if you take your pen, and on that word hospitality, just start at the letter H and move your pen to the right until you underscore the word what? Hospital. Yeah, it's kind of fun, isn't it? See, the root word to that is hospital. Our English word hospital uh, and hospitality, uh, they share the same, uh, the same root, they, the same etymology or history of where the word was derived from. And they both have the idea of being a host to guests. Being a host to guests. Hospitals exercise hospitality Uh, They receive and they minister to the needs of their guests. Different needs there than what we have here, but they are ministering to the needs of their guests. That's where that word came from. That's the concept behind our English words. It's also the concept behind the Greek word, but it's much easier to explain the English to you because that's what we speak. So hospitality is not only exercise of the hospital, but it's also exercise at home, too. That's probably where we think about it most. Uh, when Tammy and I were in Kentucky a month or two ago, uh, we were guests 
at Megan and Rusty's uh, home there in uh, Kentucky. And while we were there, we set our feet under their table and we ate their food and we tried their yum yum sauce, right? And we, we had a hotel room in town, but they offered us a bedroom to stay for the night if we wanted to. And guests in your home are away from their home, right? Guests in your home are away from their home. And for that reason, they don't have the comforts of their home available to them. So you offer them the comfort of yours. That's the whole idea behind the hospitality there. You're ministering to the needs of your guests. You meet their needs while they're in your place. Hospitality is meeting the needs of your guests, whether they are in your house where they have domestic needs, in your hospital where they have medical needs, or, look around, in your church where they have spiritual needs. The Greek word translated lover of hospitality here literally means they love guests. When people come to church, they come as guests and they come with spiritual needs. When people write me an email or they call me on the phone or with a, with a concern or a Bible question, they are coming to me as a guest they, and they come like sick people to a hospital with spiritual needs that must be met. That's really how they are. I've talked to so many people, so many people, who would much rather be dying in a hospital with physical needs and know they're on their way to heaven than living in a nice home with a nice job, unsure if they're going to go to hell when they die. Oh, they'd, uh, they'd swap with a dying person in a heartbeat if they just knew they were on their way to heaven. And when Tammy and I went to uh, Paul and Megan's house, we came hungry and we left filled. They filled our, our, our bellies. And when people come to God's house, they come hungry and they need to be filled too. And Paul says a pastor must love having these guests in meeting their spiritual needs. When we have people over my house, my wife usually makes up a little basket full of little toiletries and things that she sets in the bathroom. She usually makes a homemade pie or a cake to make their stay more pleasant. I know what you're thinking. Well, when are we going to come spend the night? But she, her, her care for these guests it, it, it is what drives her to meet their needs, you see. And if a man doesn't have that kind of care, that kind of drive to meet the needs of people who are spiritually sick and spiritually hungry, and he doesn't need to be a pastor. My wife loves hosting people. But she stresses out sometimes when she's preparing for the company. Why? Because we're all human. And it's taxing when you have guests, is it not? It's taxing. Because you have to meet the needs, not only of your own family, but you've got to now meet the needs of others too. And as a pastor, it's the same way. It's taxing meeting the needs of other people. It's easy to grow weary hearing other people's problems. Some, there's most days, everything's pretty normal. But sometimes you hear one after the other after the other, and after a while the stories start to run together. You're just hearing problems from people. You have to hear about their problems 
as a pastor when you have problems of your own. You have to hear about their drama in their life when you've got drama of your own you're having to deal with. You have to hear about their sick loved ones when you have sick loved ones of your own. Or maybe you're sick yourself. You have to listen to them cry. When on the inside, sometimes you're crying for yourself. And for this reason, a pastor must be driven by passion to meet the spiritual needs of other people. And if he's not driven by that passion, you know what's going to happen? He's going to burn out. He'll burn out. I know a man who pastored one church. He's 70-something years old now. He's pastored one church in his life, probably about... Eight years ago, he pastored his first church. And he was in his 60s then. And he only stayed there for, uh, I believe, a few months. And then he encountered some trouble with some of the people at church. And after experiencing that church trouble as a pastor, he told me, he said, I am through being a pastor. Never want to do that again. (laughs) So, listen, uh, that man is not called to be a pastor. He's just not. Uh, I've had enough church trouble for all of us put together in my lifetime. And uh, thank God, very little of it here. Very, very little of it. Some when I first came here with some folks, but I tell you, you guys are the best. Uh, I love you all very much, and you, you make it easy to be a pastor. But uh, I've had a lot of church trouble in past, and... Uh, uh, you know, if when, when you're in between churches, even during the church trouble, if you leave uh, or or even if you're there during the church trouble, if you see a church that needs a pastor and you have that drive inside you, this is the only way I can describe it. It's like a mother hearing a baby cry and you have that same desire to go pick it up and coddle it. It's that same feeling that a, that a mother gets or a dad gets. Some dads aren't very coddly. I happen to be. When my kids cried, I'd go try to meet their needs, and I, I love to coddle. Uh, and I'm a nurturer uh, for, for a man, anyway, with kids. And so I know that when you see that baby crying or that lip pucker, uh, uh, my granddaughter, uh, uh, Blair, Lauren's little girl, I was over there the other day, and uh, Lauren took something away from her. I'll tell you about that here after a while. But Lauren took something away from her. And so she, Blair looked at me and gave me that pout look on her face. Well, I just scooped her up. And I said, you poor thing. Grandpa would have never done that to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she doesn't know what I'm saying. And I'll always back mom and dad up at the house. But I was having fun with Lauren when I said that. But that's the way you feel. When you're driven, uh, you know, by the Holy Spirit, you you can't just say, I'm through being a pastor. I don't want to go through that kind of trouble again. I tell you what, if you're a pastor, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble because we live in a fallen world. If you're a Christian, you're going to have trouble. You're a pastor, you're going to have a different kind of trouble and more trouble. But a pastor has to have this strong desire burning inside him to pastor God's people. If he doesn't have it burning inside him, he's going to burn out. Paul said not only must he be a lover of guests, but he must be, look back in your text, a lover of good men. Now that word, uh, the word men here is not in the Greek text at all. 
in the where it says a lover of hospitality, it's the the Greek word for lover or love, and then the word for guest, love guest. Here it's the same thing. It's the same Greek word for love or lover, and then it's just a different word after it. So the word for guest is the word for good. Okay, and so really what it's saying here is that. He must be a lover of hospitality. He must be also a lover of good. Okay? Um, So, as a pastor must have a heart for meeting the needs of people, he must have a heart for doing the will of God. A lover of that which is good, is how some translations put it. But he has to have a love to meet the needs of people. He has to have a love to do the will of God, that which is good in the sight of God. See, these two things go hand in hand. It makes sense when you start studying the text out. A lover of hospitality. He's got to be fond of guests. He's got to be fond of good. Literally what it's saying in the Greek. And they go hand in hand because you can't help God's people by neglecting God's will. You can't do it. Lies and unrighteousness cause people to hurt. Truth and holiness cause them to heal. There's no other way around that. Lies and unrighteousness cause them to hurt. Truth and holiness cause them to heal. There was recently an article published by the Gospel Coalition. I think I shared a little piece of it with Brother Shepherd the other day. And this article in the Gospel Coalition said that it's more masculine... For a man to be attracted to other men, if that man was living and following the Lord, than for a man to be attracted to women if he was not living for the Lord. Well, listen, if if you're going around eyeballing other men, you're not living for the Lord. And and I I just sent that to Brother Shepherd, and I think I sent him one of these palm-to-the-head icons or emojis or whatever they're called. Listen, there is nothing masculine about a man being sexually attracted to other men. It's wicked and it's disgusting. I've seen a lot of men. None of them look good to me yet. I'm sorry, fellas, but you just don't. And I'm sure there are lots of pastors out there who think they're helping homosexuals. By minimizing their sin and making Christianity less offensive to them. That's really what they're trying to do. Minimize the sin. Well, I'd far rather be attracted to another man and following the Lord than be attracted to women and not doing God's will. And then they say, well, yeah, that's right. I am masculine. (laughs) You know, but... (laughs) So they minimize their sin and they make Christianity less offensive to them. They think, well, we're helping these people this way. But what these people really need is a pastor who will magnify their sin and help them them to become less offensive to God. As a Christian, I'm not trying to make God less offensive to you. If God's offensive to you, that's where you need to change. I, through the gospel, am trying to help you no longer be offensive to God. God does not need to be accepted by us. We must be accepted by Him. If a man doesn't have a passion for doing God's will, if he's not a lover of that which is good, 
If he's willing to overlook the scriptures in the name of helping people, he has no business in the ministry because he's not helping them at all. He's hurting them. Teaching the word of God and accomplishing the will of God has to be the driving force behind every pastor. Paul said a pastor must also be, look back in your text, sober. Sober. And and the word sober here in the Greek, it means to be sober in the mind. Now, of course, if you're intoxicated physically, you're not going to be sober in the mind mentally. Okay, we know it affects the brain and all of that. But here it's talking literally about being sober minded. I heard a young man the other day say that the more you text and drive, the better you get at it. And he thought he was smart and cute when he said it. But if he looks up from his phone one day, he almost hits the back end of a car. You know what it's going to do? It's going to have a sobering effect on him. He's going to think, oh, that ever happened to any of y'all? has a sobering effect, doesn't you think? I don't want to do that again. It'll be a sobering reminder for him that texting and driving is not something that he should do. He would take that young man's mind out of the land of fun and games and bring it to the real world. That's the idea of being sober-minded. A pastor has to be a man who lives and thinks in the real world, seeing things as they really are. He has to have a stable, rational, logical, and biblical frame of mind. No matter how the tide's going in the world and what's coming his way, he's got to be that rock, so to speak, that always keeps that level head, that sober frame of mind, seeing sin as the danger that it really is, and viewing God's warnings and God's promises, His admonitions with gravity of mind, seeing them as the weighty matters that they really are. He must view life according to God's Word, the truth of God's Word, and not live and think in a religious land of fun and games. A couple of weeks ago, uh, <clears throat> one of the church members sent me something. A large church in Kaufman County was promoting, through the mail, through U.S. postal mailouts, they were promoting a Walt Disney movie. The pastor at that church planned an entire sermon series there in Kaufman based on that movie's theme and was inviting the public to come attend. Boy, that just warms your heart, doesn't it? Disney World at church. I tell you what, I don't want anything to do with Disney World. I remember back in the uh, the late 80s, early 90s, when they started promoting homosexual homosexuality and lewdness and everything at Disney World. And the Southern Baptist Convention uh, told them they were wrong. And you know what Disney's response was? If you don't like it, don't come. That's what they said. That's what they told the Southern Baptist Convention. You don't like it, don't come. So at that time, Brother Adrian Rogers uh, and them, they called for a boycott for the Southern Baptists to boycott Walt Disney. You know what Baptist churches kept doing? Piling those kids on the church buses and taking them down to Disney World anyway. Didn't work. And it's sad. But the whole sermon series around a Disney movie 
couple of years ago, a church in Henderson County just down the road had people dressing up as characters, sort of like at Disney World, how they dress up in character. They had people dressing up in character of, of different characters from different popular movies. And you could come to church and they'd be dressed up and greet you and all that stuff. And I believe it's a sad day when your church, when the church of Jesus Christ is turned into a theme park. And I believe it's an indicator that the church needs to be sobered up as we deal in matters that have eternal consequences at church. Heavy matters that should never be taken lightly. This is not a place for fun and games. We have a good time here. We laugh. We enjoy each other. But this is not a place for fun and games. A pastor must be sober. And a pastor must be, look back in your text, just. And the Greek word translated just here, it means fair. It it, it literally means equitable or even, right? Like the other day, I I gave, uh, or, or Tammy gave, a certain amount of something to one of the grandkids and the other one said, well, they got more than I did, right? And so that has the idea of even. Well, that's not fair. It has that concept there. And, and, and a pastor must be a man who has a sense of fair play. He has to be someone who conducts his business in a godly manner, treating other people the way he would want them to treat him because the church is conducting God's business. And if a man doesn't handle his business at home with integrity, then he won't handle God's business at the church with integrity. And it's so important that we operate with integrity here because we need to represent God's righteous and holy character here. It's very fascinating. It often is. Brother Shepherd was teaching about holy man of God today in Sunday school, what it means to be a holy man of God. And I thought, well, there it is, dovetailing back into my text this morning. Because the next qualification for a pastor that he must be, if you look back in the text, you see the word holy. Not only must he be just, but he must be holy, or he must be a holy man of God, as uh, Elisha was. And so the Greek word translated holy here, it's fascinating to me. It's a special word here, and it has the idea not being holy in regards to how well the pastor follows a set of rules. But it means to be holy in his intrinsic nature. In his actual core nature, he's holy. Anybody can follow a set of rules. And it appear to be holy by following those rules. That's what the Pharisees did. But to be holy in your intrinsic nature, there's only one way to be holy that way. And that's to be born again By the Holy Spirit of God. Then you have a divine nature. You see? A holy nature. That's what Paul is talking about here. So the only way for that pastor to be holy in the sense of this word here. Is that he is born again by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Mark this down in your margin of your Bible or in your notes. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4. And there the Apostle Peter says... 2 Peter 1.4, he says that God has given to us, quote, exceeding great and precious promises that by these, by these promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Not the divine experience, but the divine nature. 
That means by the promises that God gives us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that Jesus did for us. All that Jesus is going to do for us. We accept those promises in the gospel package. In the new covenant package. We believe on Jesus as our Savior. And by our faith in Him, we now partake of the divine nature. So this means, Paul is saying, a pastor must be a man whose faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very core of his life, his ministry, and his teachings. Again, the Pharisees appeared to be holy, but they denied the very power of holiness by denying the redemption of God's Son. They couldn't be holy. They were corrupt in their flesh. And whatever is of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus said. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The Pharisees were not holy in their intrinsic nature. They were trying to have a divine experience by trying to act like God, trying to mimic what they thought was holy, but they were not born again. I don't care how religious a man appears. There is no holiness outside our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. Apart from that holy regeneration, not only will a pastor not be able to overcome the fate in the influence of this fallen world, but he'll be unable to tell other people how to overcome it as well. Outside his faith in Christ crucified for his sins. A pastor will be simply serving in his religious flesh. Not ministering in the power of the most holy faith. By which the church lives and moves and has its being. Above all else therefore. A church must make sure. That their next pastor. Or the pastor they have now. I tell you, there's sometimes, and boy, I'm telling you, I'm all about taking care of your pastor. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I am a pastor. So I'm all about taking care of your pastor and standing up and protecting and all that stuff. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, there's a lot of churches around this world right now. The best thing that church can do is send that guy packing. That's the best thing they can do. The church needs to make sure that their pastor or their next pastor, above all else, is thoroughly and clearly rooted in the gospel. Because if you take that away, there is no holiness. There really can be no sobriety of his mind. Because he can't think according to the gospel covenant. You see, really all these things start to go away when you remove his comprehension of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church must make sure. That the cross of Christ. Is the core. Of that man's life in ministry. Lastly. Today Paul said the man must be. Look back at your text. Temperate. Temperate. And that Greek word here means to be strong in a particular matter. Or to be strong in a particular thing. To be strong at it in the sense that he's mastered it. Does that make sense? Not to be strong like picking something up. But to be strong in the sense that he's mastered a particular thing. So the idea here is that he's gained mastery over or control over his own fleshly passions. 
A pastor has to be that way. He can't be sinless, of course. But a pastor must demonstrate the ability by God's grace, by his faith in the gospel, that he, in fact, is dead indeed unto sin through Christ, but alive unto God through Jesus' resurrection. A pastor must be able to demonstrate his ability through that grace of Christ to control his carnal appetites. The Greek root word here has the idea of dominion and power. When it says he has to be temperate. Dominion and power. You wouldn't think of that when you saw the word temperate. So a pastor has to exercise dominion and power. Remember the first thing. that the, the, Some of the descriptions that God said about mankind. Well, they're going to be in God's image. They're going to represent God on earth. But he said let them have what? Dominion. He meant for them to rule in the power of God on earth. And so here the pastor, he has to be uh, temperate. He has to be able to exercise dominion and power. And that's not talking about going around with an iron fist. It's talking about him having control and mastery over the appetites of his flesh through his faith in the gospel message. Our fallen flesh constantly craves and demands what's not good for it and what's not good for you. Constantly craves it. It's never going to stop. If you think your flesh is going to get better, you're sadly mistaken. It's not going to get better. Now, it'll get new, (laughs) but until it gets new, it's not going to get better. And it's not going to get new until Jesus comes again. So you can forget that. But your fallen flesh and my fallen flesh constantly craves things. I told you I'd tell you a little bit more about my granddaughter, uh, Lauren's daughter, the other day. Little Blair was sitting down to eat, and Lauren fixed her some supper. And Blair had seen her daddy earlier, I don't know when, she had seen him put some spaghetti sauce on his food. And that jar was sitting out, so Blair pointed at that jar. So Lauren went over and put a little spaghetti sauce on there, and she ate her food. Well, when Grandpa found out about that, I went and I got some of that Paul Newman's marinara spaghetti sauce. That's the good stuff now, Paul Newman, Newman's own. I got her her own big fat jar of spaghetti sauce. Took it by her house after work. And I presented her with that jar of spaghetti sauce. Well, Lauren set it down next to her her little thing that night. I got a cute video of it. And Lauren turned her back to start cutting up her food. And when she did, old Blair's reaching her hand, just like Pooh Bear into the honey pot, reaching her hand into that spaghetti jar and just stuffing her mouth with that spaghetti sauce. And now Lauren says that she refuses to eat anything without spaghetti sauce on it. All she does is push the plate back and point at the refrigerator. So I've started something. And it was fun. But while we was at my daughter's house, Blair had the little spoon with some spaghetti sauce on it. She decided she wanted to go play in the living room with that spoon with spaghetti sauce. And so that's when her mother had to take that spoon away from her. Why? Because she didn't have control over what she did with that spoon. While you let that little girl loose in there, she may not intend wrong, 
But you let her loose in there with a spoonful of spaghetti sauce, she's going to have it all over everything. That one little spoon of sauce will be on everything. Almost paint the house with it. And as she touched and played and put it down, if she had control of the sauce in that living room, it would have made quite a mess because she didn't possess the mastery of her own passions. She's too young. She feels the need to paint the chair with the spaghetti sauce. That's exactly what she's going to do. And as a child without self-control will make a mess in the living room. A pastor without self-control will make an even larger mess in the church. That's when the scandals get started. That's when people start getting hurt. That's when the scars and the wounds start getting in people's hearts. There, there are some of the things a, a pastor must be here that Paul is talking about. And you can't overlook them. You can't say why, how charming that man is. How polished he is. Look at the, the, the degrees he has. Look at this. Look at his experience. No. You look at God's word. And if that man doesn't match up with God's word. You've got to cut him loose. These are some of the things a pastor must be. Next, willing God, uh, next week, rather, God willing, we're going to look at some, uh, some more of the things that a pastor must be. But let me just leave with this right here. We was watching an old western the other day. That's one of the things we can watch. It doesn't have cursing and stuff in it at home. And uh, they had a wanted poster on somebody. And back then, you know, you didn't have driver's licenses and social security cards and computer systems. And all you have is that wanted poster with description of that person. Maybe a little etching or something, you know, of that person. And... You take that person and you match up the height, the weight, the look, the build, the whatever. And if you get enough indicators there, you go ahead and grab hold of that man. But if they don't match up, you got to let that man go. You know? And, and that's what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to give us the indicators. So that, and, and I don't know, I mean, I, you know... Brother Shepherd and I, we may kill over in the next month. You don't know. And if that were to happen, you need to be able to take the wanted poster, match it up with the man that you need, and make sure he meets the bill before you lay hold of him. Because if he doesn't, you've got to cut him loose. Because if you don't, your church is going to have problems. And you may not even realize a lot of churches have problems. They don't even know we're there. They don't even know we're there. They think everything's going just fine. I'm sure if they're doing the Walt Disney theme this morning, which I think they are. I don't. I can't remember when it started. But if they're doing the Walt Disney theme this morning at the church there in Kaufman, I'm sure that church is thinking, this is really good for people. This really relates to the people and reaches out to the world. They're probably thinking all that stuff's great. The truth is they've got problems. They're drinking Kool-Aid instead of eating steak. And, and, and the Kool-Aid, I would venture to say, is probably poison. But that will go ahead and stop. And Lord willing, we'll take back up where we left off next week. Is that candid enough for you? That's the way we try to be here. I don't want to hurt feelings and I don't want to talk bad about other churches. 
But I tell you what, if we don't tell it like it is, it's just not going to get told. Father, we thank you for your precious word. I thank you for the good singing today. I thank you for the people who came to hear your word today. I pray, Father, that you'll let these uh, truths sink deep down into our hearts. More than anything, not just for the future selection of a pastor, Father, and hopefully in years to come. But, Father, that me and Brother Shepherd will meet those uh, and seek to uh, excel in those qualifications today. That we'll hold ourselves accountable. Father, we'll strive, dear Lord God, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds into what you would have us be. In Jesus' precious and wonderful name we pray. Amen.